Well, good morning, Lindsley Avenue. It's good to see everybody. It's good to have a visitor or two with us this morning. We're glad you're here. I hope you'll come back and visit again at each and every opportunity that you have. Uh, I will say Happy Easter, even though Easter is not a, a Bible word. Uh, it shows up in the King James once. But there's no indication that uh, in the New Testament times that they picked one Sunday out of the year to make a special focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, they may have, for all we know, but there's no evidence of that. So we focus on what Jesus did for us and what God did for us by raising Jesus from the dead each and every Sunday. However, you can't get away from the fact that everybody's thinking about it and talking about it. Because according to the calendar, this would have been almost certainly the Sunday that Jesus was raised from the dead. So happy Easter. Hopefully, uh, again, not in the Bible, we'll have an Easter egg or two at some point this morning. I want to focus on this idea from the book of Genesis, and then we'll apply it to what we're likely all thinking about today anyway. So bear with me. Call me Isaac, my title with apologies to Herman Melville, who would call me Ishmael. Uh, that's how Moby Dick starts out, call me Ishmael. Uh, I prefer much rather, I think, to be called Isaac. So let's look at Genesis 12. This is where Thurl was just a moment ago. There's a promise made to Abraham, and he is still over in the Ur of the Chaldees, far away from the land of Israel. Point if I remember correctly, he's about 75 years old. He's been married to his wife, Sarai, for I don't know how many years, but they are childless. They don't have any children. And then God speaks to Abram here in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's promise to Abram was that his descendants would nearly be uncountable. In another spot, we read that as the stars of the heaven or as the sands of the seashore, they would be. How's that going to be since he and his wife, Sarai, have no children at this point? In order to have descendants be rather uh, uncountable, you've got to have a child at least. Right? How's that going to work out? Well, that's in Genesis 12 when he is 75 years old. Over in Genesis 15, God repeats this promise to Abram. Here's what he says here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram speaks back to God. It's not a problem sometimes to take our worries and concerns to God and directly vocalize them, say them to God. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I still don't have any children. Abram is approximately maybe 90-ish years old here at this point. A few years have gone by. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household, a servant, will be my heir. So a few chapters later, Abram's wondering how, since he had no son, where were the descendants to come? Were they going to come through a hired servant? Here's what God says back to him. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. 
This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he, God, said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it, God counted it to Abram as righteousness. Such an incredible moment of faith and belief and trust in God that God, as it were, wrote down on his ledger of accounts righteous because of this firm belief and trust that Abram showed. Now, if you go outside on the clearest, darkest night you can possibly get, there's really about 3,000 stars that can be seen. It may seem like there are billions, you can't see them all. There are billions of stars, you just can't see them. But I promise you, if you started trying to count them, you'd mess up. We have to start over. So about 3,000 stars in another spot, God says that like the sands on the seashore, those numbers are in the trillions of trillions. So the point is, if you're going to have so many children, it's as if no one would be able to count them. All through, as God says here, your very own son. It won't be your hired servant, Eliezer, who's going to be the one through whom your descendants come. It's going to be from your own son, but he and Sarah are still childless. No child. It would be through the son that was going to come to Abram and Sarai that that promise would be fulfilled. A few years later, it finally happens. Abram is like 99, as I recall. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age and hers at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. <clears throat> Abram was a hundred years old when he was born, in 99, I believe, when uh, Isaac was conceived. A hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears this will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? Could I have borne him a son in his old age? Long after the time when most people would have been grandparents or great-grandparents you know, or beyond, Sarah is finally blessed with a child. And she's just laughing. I would never have dreamed that I would ever have the joy of a child, especially even now in my old age. Finally. Abram has a son that God had promised. So the promise is fulfilled about 25 years after God first makes it. First thing I want to make sure we think of today is God has made all sorts of promises to each of us. They will come about and come into play in his own time. If we want to say, Lord, give me patience and I need it now. It may take a little while for a promise to come true. Just because it doesn't happen today, tomorrow, this week, you can't give up on the promise of God because God will come through on his promise when it's time for that to be. 25 years is a long time. No child this year. Put an X on the calendar. No child next year. X on the calendar. 25 X's, right? Abram's keeping up with calendars on the wall. And still no child. And then suddenly, 25 or so years after that promise is first made, Abram, Abraham finally has a 
Imagine the joy not only is Sarah's experiencing, but Abraham is experiencing. God is, has followed through on his promise. I have a son, and God promised me that through my descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's not through, in this case, testing Abraham. In the very next chapter, chapter 21 is where Isaac was born, and chapter 22, Isaac is now somewhat a young boy. We're not sure exactly how old, old enough to talk and all that. So anywhere I would think from 4 to 10, maybe 4 to 12, not sure exactly. All probably seemed like it was going pretty well to Abraham. I mean, Isaac's growing up. See my little boy, Sarah's having fun with a little child, and this is the child through whom God is going to fulfill the promise. Look at Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. God may test us even after a promise appears to have come true. A promise seems to have been fulfilled. Joy may come into our life, but we may still have a test, still have something that checks to see whether our faith is real, is genuine. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Let me tell you, first of all, if anyone ever thinks they hear a voice suggesting something remotely like that today, please call me. Because I do not believe God speaks to people in that way today. Thurl shouldn't be hearing voices in his head with God telling him things. I shouldn't be. God doesn't seem to communicate that way at all anymore, much less take a child and go offer him as a sacrifice. Let's at least talk about it, right? So I don't really think that's a concern for any of us today, but you, you always want to make sure people realize this is then and this is now. Take the son, take the son, the son of promise that they waited so many years. Abraham, take him. And you're going to offer him as a sacrifice for God shows him. The moment of joy that he may have woken up with in the morning, still knowing my son's around here. I hear him out there. He's up early. He's out playing around, chasing a chicken or whatever may have been nearby. And then when God speaks to him, how's this going? How's this going? Continue on in chapter 22. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, his servants, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, so that's a lot of time in this traveling here, several days, Abraham's still thinking and wondering, what's going to happen? How's this going to work? On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And most worship in this day and age involved making sacrifices. So when he says we're going to go and worship, the understanding they all would have had is there's going to be a sacrifice, a burnt offering over there to God. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. Isaac said to his father, Isaac's pretty observant, smart boy. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He, Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where 
is the lamb for the burnt offering. What are we going to offer as a sacrifice? I see all the stuff we're carrying with us, but Dad, we seem to be missing something. You know, where's the animal? Where's the lamb? Look at Abraham's response. God will provide for himself the lamb of the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. God had not told Abraham this. If you read back through what we've looked at, God did not tell Abraham anything other than take your son and offer him as a sacrifice. For I tell you, Abraham is in his own mind concluded God can't possibly kill my son. The son of promise want me to offer him. God will provide what is needed. God will provide a sacrifice. The book of Hebrews fills in a, a little bit of a gap that's here in Genesis. When the book of Hebrews talks about Abraham offering Isaac, it says that Abraham had at least concluded that if, if God has me offer Isaac as a sacrifice, God will raise him again, will resurrect him, will bring him back to life. If that's what God required, God will bring Isaac back to life. Not mentioned here, but it's in the book of Hebrews. God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the altar and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. God had told him to do it, and Abraham is ready to do it. We've got a couple of pictures here because I want you to visualize that scene. Look at the picture there, the, the painting here of Isaac. He's obviously a young boy, 8 to 10 years old. He doesn't appear to be struggling. He's been raised to know about God. Abraham in this picture is looking up to heaven with the knife. This is what you've told me to do. Here's another picture, a little more uh, cartoonish, a little bit, a little more not real. See the fire over there ready after the, the boys killed? That's what God has told Abraham to do. And in Abraham's test, Abraham is ready to do what God has told him to do. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! Well, Abraham's got the knife raised, ready to do it. And it's as if God reaches out and says, hold on. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear, that you respect God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from him. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Let me stop right there. Do you think there were some tears in Abraham's eyes at that moment? I think he would have been a robot not to have had emotion. As close as he had come to do what God had told him to do, to kill his own son, and then God calls out to him and says, stop. I'm surprised he could see what he's about to see over here in the bushes, because he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, caught in some bushes. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God did, in fact, provide the sacrifice. There's nothing said here about what Isaac, how he responded to this circumstance. You know, he would remember that 
his entire life, for sure. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that story? What can we learn about that story and think about it today when we're thinking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Well, bear with me. Let's take a look. Sacrifices were needed for sin. There were many different types of sacrifices in the Old Testament for many different purposes. One of the main offerings was for sin, a sin offering. Second Chronicles 29, verses 20 and 21. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls and seven rams and seven lambs and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. As often as people sinned, there must have been a lot of offerings made as sin offerings. What's the result of sin? Why is sin such a big deal that it requires an offering? Well, look at Isaiah 59 2. Isaiah says, but your iniquities, a big word for sins, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. If we are living a life of sin where we're focused on ourselves and what we want, focused on doing things that we want to do instead of listening to God, that lifestyle, those actions, those sins have made a separation between us and God. And once we live that way, that separation is not a distance that we can close the gap on by ourselves. We are the ones who by our own actions walk away as it were from God. And our sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear you. If I'm living a life of sin and I try to call out to God, God is not going to hear because there's all this in between my life of sin. Well, the result of sin is that separation. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, what we get paid, what we earn with a life of sin and actions that are sinful, is death. I would argue that's a strong, those two verses together are a strong uh, suggestion that that separation from God is spiritual death. Death is, in fact, separation from God. If I have a life of sin, my existence is separated from God. And if I die like that, I won't be going home to God because I am separated from God. The wages, what I get paid, what I earn, what I choose to take as my wages if I'm living a life of sin is death. James 1 15 is the verse we've heard several times. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. It's my own choices, pursuing things that look good to me when I really know inside I shouldn't pursue those things, that leads to sin, and sin, once it's in me, if it's not cleaned out, will grow and grow and grow, as it were, like an infection, which gives birth to did this to myself. I separated myself from God by living in sin and I put a, a barrier, so to speak, between myself and the face of God so that it would not hear me. 
Hebrews 10.4 says, For it's impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sins. There are all these sin offerings in the Old Testament. Hebrews says it's really no way that the blood of an animal is really going to be able to actually close that gap that you created between yourself and God. There were all sorts of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. None of them, the writer of Hebrews says, are really going to be able somehow to make things right with God, to close that gap, to remove the barrier, remember, that I put there, that separation that I generated. Thankfully, 1 Peter 2.24, he, Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die of sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The only real hope that any of us ever had was for God to provide the sacrifice that would cover my sins, that would close that distance, that separation that I put between myself and God. And that sacrifice that will take away sin it's not blood and goats. That's the reason we don't have a giant fire going out here outside of the building. That's the reason those are not done any longer. It's because there was one sacrifice made one time that does pay the price for sin. That does close that separation between God and man and God and woman. That does remove that block so that the face of God is open to hear us when we call out to him. And that sacrifice was the life and death of Jesus. <coughs> Romans 5, 9. By his, Jesus' blood, we are now put right with God. <coughs> How much more then will we be saved by him from God's anger? God really has this uh, anger toward those who are living in rebellion. And that's what a life of sin is. As a parent, you may have had a time when a child actively showed rebellion to you. You know, there's a whole lot of things that are pretty easy to forgive as a parent. You know, I mean, all children make mistakes. I know I did, raise both hands. But the thing that parents really cannot stand is active rebellion, which is a sense of fist to the face. You know, that kind of thing. I'm going to do what I want to. And life of sin where you're actively rebelling against God, that's what it is. And that requires <coughs> coverage of the blood of Jesus to close that gap that we each make when we walk away from God. By Jesus' blood, we are now put right with God. We have peace with God. Whereas before Jesus' blood, we were separated from God. Here's the good news. We are all we are all Isaac. Call me Isaac this morning. Because instead of my life being required in terms of death and being separated from God, we have all been spared from that separation, from that death by our own actions bringing death upon us. Spiritual separation, physical separation from God. Because we, as it were, have been taken off that altar in the same way Isaac was. And Jesus took our place. Jesus was the one who was sacrificed. Jesus is the one who died so that I would not have to. I would not have to remain separated from God. I would not have to remain receiving death 
as the wages, the payment for my own choices. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. Paul here says, Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Notice again, away from the presence of the Lord. I'm not so much worried about people in terms of a future destination being in a flaming fire, an actual physical fire. I mean, fire burns things up and they're gone, but this separation from God does occur repeatedly throughout. I think the idea of flames and fire and flaming fire and things like that is to show how desperately horrible, painful separation from God will be for some for all eternity. Jesus is going to come inflicting vengeance on who? Did you see who, who was going to receive that vengeance? Who was going to receive the punishment? On those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Well, knowing God and knowing Jesus is the good news. The good news is Jesus came, but there's a requirement that we have to change. Obeying the gospel involves changing my life so that I don't live for myself anymore. I don't live a life of sin. I live a life for God. And as part of that, I die to myself and I'm raised to walk in newness of life. We, we talk about that whenever the invitation is offered. Look at Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. We once were separated from God without hope in the world, but now by the blood of Christ, we've been brought near to God. We're no longer separated from God, but we're a member of his family because Jesus' blood has enabled that gap to disappear. And I already mentioned Romans 5.1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus brings peace to that life of sin and separation that I chose to do on my own. So I would say, call me Isaac and call me Satan because I'm not on that Altar My life is not going to be sacrificed. I will not have to pay for my sins with death and separation from God. Because I've been, as it were, taken off that, off that altar. Jesus is the one who died on the cross, on the tree. He paid the price with his blood, his sacrifice, so that I could die to my old way of living and be a new person. So think about again, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was about to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. How hard that would have been for him, but God provided the offering that saved Isaac. He had that ram over in the bushes. We are all Isaac. We have all separated ourselves from God in lives of sin, deserving of death, the wages of sin being death. But instead of our own lives being required, God himself provided that perfect sacrifice, Jesus. Jesus is the offering for our sins. He took our place. He died and God raised him from the dead, as we talked about last week, to give us a living hope. That's the reason that we are thinking of the death of Jesus, not only today, but we need to think about the death and resurrection of Jesus every single day that we live. 
single day that we live needs to be lived for God rather than living for ourselves. That separation is no more. We're no longer separated from God. Why would I want to try to separate again by engaging in a life of sin once I've been brought near to God? So Jesus paid the price for our sins so that we would be forgiven in our sight. We can come be forgiven today if you are aware of your sinful situation. If you have, you have to, we have to all be aware that my own actions have separated me from God. We have to understand that. Or nothing you try to do is going to make any sense. You can't just go by and throw things at people. With, uh, if we were throwing water trying to immerse everybody in the world, I'm wet. That's all people would think. They wouldn't know any of it. You have to be aware of your sinful situation, that your own choices, just like my own choices, separated us from God, and that Jesus came to live and die for you. As Jesus himself said, the closing three verses, these are statements of Jesus, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent here to live and die for me, I will die in my sins, and I will receive death as the payment for those sins, separation from God. Luke 13, 13, Jesus himself said, Unless you repent, you will all in like manner, all in a similar way, perish. i got to change. I can't keep doing the things that I've been doing. If I've got a problem with lying, if I've got a problem with anger, I have to change my life and work to be different. If you were to take a picture of a person a year before they became a Christian and a year after, there should be a difference in the way they look and behave. And then in the third place, Jesus himself said, whoever believes, whoever understands who I am and what I came to do and is baptized and is immersed, as we talked about last week, will be saved. So my question for each of us this morning, where are each of us on this journey? I'm a member of God's family and I keep living for myself a little bit every day, every other day. If you need to come back to God and ask for prayer and forgiveness so that that separation will be closed again, we have that avenue of prayer. We're all happy and love to pray for you. Take your name before God. God will graciously forgive. If you're not yet a member of His family, today is the day. Today's the day. He died for you and he died for me. Just do it together as we stand and sing.